Well, last week we looked at spiritual deadness. The whole sermon was about spiritual deadness, verses 1 to 3 of Ephesians chapter 2. And we looked at symptoms of spiritual deadness, walking in trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan, uh, living in the passions of our flesh and carrying out the desires of the body and mind and being children of wrath. As children of Adam, we are sons of disobedience, as verse 2 says, and children of wrath, as verse 3 says. And so last week we looked thoroughly at the problem of the human race, which is spiritual death. Ever since Adam sinned, all of his descendants, which includes all of us, are born guilty of sin and we are born corrupt because of Adam's sin. And so, uh, like the rest of mankind, the end of verse 3 says, like the rest of mankind, the Ephesian Christians used to be in that state. And because it says, like the rest of mankind, it tells us that we also, who are Christians now, here in Barbados in the 21st century, also used to be in that state. And by implication, it also teaches us that all who are outside of Christ Jesus, who are not yet believers in Him, are still in this state. They are still walking in trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, living in the passions of their flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and are still children of wrath. So that is a condensed summary of what we looked at last week. And then at the beginning of verse 4, the whole tone of the passage changes. It's very bleak up until that point. Last Sunday morning was a fairly heavy message. We, we um, looked extensively at this theme of spiritual deadness, and it's fairly heavy. But then the tone of the passage changes at the beginning of verse 4, and it says, But God! Martin Lloyd-Jones preached a whole sermon on those two words, and I'm not going to do that this morning. But he, he was drawing out the point that uh, these two words, and I'm quoting... These two words in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole of the gospel. The gospel tells us of what God has done, God's intervention. The gospel is something that comes entirely from outside us and displays to us that wondrous and amazing and astonishing work of God, which the apostle goes on to describe and to define in the following verses, end quote. But God, in response to our deadness, God has done something. Hallelujah, praise be to God. There is a gospel. There is good news for sinners. So what is the work of God which Lloyd-Jones says is not only wondrous, not only amazing, not only astonishing, but as Lloyd-Jones said, wondrous and amazing and astonishing. Just what does the apostle say that God did in respect to spiritually dead sinners. Just how did God intervene? The first thing that we see uh, in this passage, following the but God, is that God made us alive. But God, and then there's another run-on sentence. Paul is a big fan of these run-on sentences. But if you take out all of the extra stuff between the commas, the sentence would read, but God... And then all the way down to the middle of verse 5, made us alive together with Christ. That's the the thrust of the sentence that Paul introduces in response to spiritual deadness. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, etc., etc., etc. But God 
made us alive together with Christ. This is what God did in response to our spiritual deadness. Being made alive, to use the words of this passage, is equivalent to being born again, as Jesus says in John chapter 3, or being regenerated, as I read earlier from Titus chapter 3. These are synonymous concepts in the New Testament. Being made alive, being born again, being regenerated. To generate means to come into existence for the first time, and then to become spiritually dead would therefore be to have that that life extinguished. And so to be regenerated is a revivification, a re-enlivening of uh, the soul. To be born again means that you uh, were, uh, well, Jesus talks about as being physically born and then born a second time spiritually, but... uh, Um, The idea there is that the Spirit needs to also be born and that the Spirit needs to come uh, alive. And Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that God did that. He made us alive together with Christ, all of us who are Christians. As 1 Peter says, He caused us to be born again to a living hope. As Titus 3 says, He regenerated us. These are synonymous concepts in the New Testament. So what did God do? In response to our deadness, God made us alive. We were dead, but God made us alive. It's important to note that what is in view here is a qualitative change. When we read about regeneration, when we read about being born again, when we read about being made alive, we're not reading about a legal change. There is a legal change that happens to us in the gospel, but that's not what being born again is talking about. That's not what being made alive is talking about. What is in view here when it says, but God made us alive is a qualitative change. It changes our actual being. Something actually happens to us. When I uh, became a citizen of Barbados earlier this year, nothing actually happened to me. I walked out of the office as the exact same man as I walked into the office. Nothing actually changed in me. Something changed legally, something changed in my status, but nothing actually changed in me by virtue of me becoming a citizen of Barbados. When we are justified, our legal record changes. We are, uh, as the scripture tells us, transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. These are legal changes. These are changes of status. But when we talk about being made alive, as Paul does in Ephesians chapter 2, when we talk about being born again, when we talk about being regenerated, we are talking about an actual qualitative change in us. And alongside the legal change that happens, there is a qualitative change that happens when a person is born again, when a person is made alive. The best analogy I could give you would be actually coming from physical death to physical life. But since none of us have experienced that, none of us could relate. So let me give you a couple of examples that might help approach something of what it means to experience a qualitative change. When we are hungry and we grow weak, we eat food and we experience a qualitative change. We regain strength and sustenance. When we're physically tired, 
we grow weak and we grow mentally fatigued and our thinking becomes foggy and so on and so forth. And then we sleep. And as we sleep, we undergo a qualitative change so that when we wake up, we're actually different than when we went to sleep. Uh, when we fall out of a tree or off a ladder and land on our back and get the wind knocked out of us, we can't breathe. And then we finally gasp and get some oxygen back into our lungs and we recover. There's a qualitative change. All of these things fall short of what happens when we're made alive together with Christ. Because we're not talking about going from weakness to strength. We're talking about going from death to life. But since we have nothing analogous with which to compare that, we have to settle for these uh, lesser analogies. But the point is that there was no spiritual life in us and then God made us alive. What is in view here is a qualitative change. Something that actually happens to us. Something that actually changes our constitution. God does something to us. He makes us alive. He causes us to be born again, as First Peter says. He regenerates us. That is something that God does to us. Who makes us alive? I just want to drive home this point. What does the passage say? Who makes us alive? But God made us alive together with Christ. We don't make ourselves alive. We don't cause ourselves to be born again. The scripture, when it talks about this qualitative change that happens in the soul, always, in every instance, speaks of it as being God's work. God causes us to be born again, as 1 Peter says. God makes us alive, as Ephesians 2 says. John chapter 3 says that we are born of the Spirit. It is God who makes us alive. We don't cause ourselves to be made alive. Look in this text. Let me show you it textually, and then let me try to draw it out further theologically. At what time, what was going on in our lives, in our hearts, when God made us alive? What was going on in the Ephesians' lives at the time that God made them alive? Were they looking? Were they seeking? Were they studying? Were they preparing themselves? Were they, what were they doing? Verse 5 says, even when we were dead in our trespasses. At that time, that's a time marker. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. When the Ephesians were walking in trespasses and sins. When the Ephesians were following the course of this world. When the Ephesians were following the prince of the power of the air. When the Ephesians were living in the passions of their flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. When the Ephesians were children of wrath. At that time, God made them alive together with Christ. Think about it. They didn't even want to be made alive together with Christ at that time. Think about it. Look, look at it. Look at the text. What were they doing when God made them alive? They were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Which was sin. Walking in the trespasses and sins. Uh, following Satan. That's what they were doing. The, the desires of their hearts at the time that God made them alive were not for God. The desires of their hearts at the time that God made them alive were uh, for sin. That was the nature of spiritual deadness. If the desires of their body and mind were not for sin, but were for God, that wouldn't be spiritual deadness. That would be spiritual life. And they would have nothing, therefore, to be rescued from. The desires of their body and their mind, 
The passions of their flesh led them not toward God, but away from God. And so they were utterly dead in their trespasses and sins, and God made them alive together with Christ. So why are we Christians? Not because we were better than our neighbors. Not because we were better than our family members or our friends. Not because we were wiser. Not because we were smarter. Not because we were more receptive. Not because God saw any potentiality in us that He could leverage for the advance of His kingdom. Look at what it says here. Why did He do it? Why did God make us alive? Because of the great love with which He loved us. Because of the great love with which He loved us. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. Why did He make us alive and not others? Not because of something in ourselves. We are unable to make ourselves alive. We are dead. We are destitute of spiritual life. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us looks upon dead sinners and God makes people alive. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. And so Paul says for the first time in this passage, by grace you are saved. He's going to say it again, but he says it here because he wants us to see that this qualitative change that has happened in our hearts that has happened in our lives, was not wrought by us. It wasn't our own doing. And we didn't merit it. If we merited it, it wouldn't be grace. If we cooperated with God in it, it wouldn't be something that uh, He did. It would be something that we did. And so it would say, but God partnered with you to bring you to life. But it doesn't say that. It says, but God made you alive when you were dead. What did you bring to the table? Only the spiritual death that made the uh, drastic change necessary. That's what you contributed to your being brought from death to life. You contributed the death and God contributed the life. So Paul bursts out, by grace you were saved. He wants us to get this. We didn't do it. We didn't do it to ourselves. God made us alive. By grace, you are saved. And so what are the symptoms of spiritual life? What does the qualitative change look like in reality? What does it look like in practice when God makes someone alive? Paul doesn't expound on that greatly in this section But by implication, it's the opposite of all the things that are spiritual death. It's the opposite of all the symptoms of spiritual death. Instead of walking in trespasses and sins, and we talked about last week, walking doesn't mean, um, uh, walking in holiness doesn't mean that we never sin, but walking uh, in holiness means that we're characterized by holiness. Um, Walking is the general character, the general quality of our lives. And so in contrast to walking in trespasses and sins, those who are spiritually alive walk in holiness. Again, 1 John chapter 1 verse 8 and verse 10 tell us that we sin. We have sin and we do sin. And if we think otherwise about ourselves, we're deceived. We make God out to be a liar. His truth is not in us. We as Christians sin, but instead of walking in trespasses and sins, 
we walk in holiness, that there's a general quality to our lives of obedience. Sin is lack of conformity unto or transgression against the law of God. Holiness, by contrast, then, is conformity to the law of God and, and, uh, uh, and not transgressing the law of God. Obedience unto the law of God. People who have been made alive are characterized by obedience to God's law. People who have been made alive no longer are walking in trespasses and sins, but they're walking in obedience to God's law. People who have been made alive are no longer following the course of this world. The thought process is no longer, well, everyone else is doing it. That's no longer the thought process. The thought process is no longer, well, I just look around and do what everyone else is doing around me. It's no longer just, well, that's just the way everyone does it. The thought, that's no longer the thought process. For those who have been made alive, they're no longer just going with the flow, no longer just following the course of this world. But elsewhere in Scripture, we read that those who are alive, those who have been regenerated, have their minds set on heavenly things, spiritual things. And so our our mindset shifts away from just doing what everyone else is doing. We're no longer... Uh, uh, just trying to be like everyone else. But as the Apostle says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9, we make it our aim to please Him. That's the way that the regenerate person thinks. And we who have been born again, who have been made alive together with Christ, are no longer following the prince of the power of the air, but we are now following the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We are no longer following that being who is in mutiny towards the King of Kings, that prince who has gone, uh, uh, set himself up in, in distinction to and in, in challenge of the King of Kings, but we see him as a traitor. We see Satan as one who is trying to usurp power that does not rightfully belong to him, but belongs to our God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and Christ Jesus, whom has been appointed mediator of His people and heir of all things. We look to Christ and say, He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we no longer follow the prince of the power of the air, but we follow Jesus. 1 Timothy 6 calls Him the King of kings. And Revelation 19 calls Him the King of kings. We follow Him. Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. Jesus is called the king of kings. And when we're regenerate, we see that. And we no longer follow Satan, but we follow Christ Jesus. And we no longer live in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, as those who are spiritually dead do. Instead, we have passions for God, carrying out His desires. We talked about last week passions of the flesh doesn't necessarily mean uh, a sexual passion it can just be things that the the pull that we feel towards whatever it may be uh, that arise from our sinful nature when we are born again when we are made alive together with Christ we find that we have actually new passions new affections in our hearts we're no longer drawn and pulled to sin the way we once were. Yes, from time to time we do experience that, but it's greatly weakened and it's radically changed. We see a radical reorientation 
of our affections and our passions. Now we long for God. Even sometimes when we're in our driest spiritual state, we're still like, man, I just want to get back to communion with God. You see that that's a, that's a new passion that the unbeliever does not feel. This longing for God, this longing for His righteousness, this longing for His kingdom, this longing for His glory, passions for God, and carrying out His desires. Instead of the desires of the body and mind, we're now uh, oriented towards God's desires. Our wills are reoriented away from our own desires towards God's desires whenever those two things are in conflict. And so, as Christ Jesus prayed in the garden, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That's the response of a regenerate heart to God's desires. Whatsoever God wills, that's what I will. This is, this is a reorientation that happens when a person is made alive, born again, regenerated. Now, in sanctification, our desires become conformed to God's desires so that we increasingly begin to want what it is that God wants. But the reason that we want what God wants, the reason that we begin to want what God wants is because God wants it. It's not just a coincidence that as we're sanctified, we just begin to happen to want holiness. It's that we begin to want the things that God wants because for the very reason that God wants that. And so you may see, when we talked a little bit about this last week, non-Christians sometimes do the right things, but they do the right things for the wrong reasons. And so a husband who is not a believer, who is not regenerate, who hasn't been made alive together with Christ, might want to treat his wife well, which is also what God wants for him to do. But the reason that he wants to treat his wife well is because he wants to treat his wife well not because God wants him to treat his wife well. As we're sanctified, we learn to actually want to do the right things because God wants us to do the right things. There's a Godward orientation of our wills. And in heaven, when our affections have been perfectly conformed uh, to holiness, when we have come into complete subjection to Christ our Savior, we will desire all the same things for ourselves that God desires for us. But we will not desire them fundamentally, ultimately simply because we desire them, but because God desires them. You see, uh, there's a conformity to whatever God wills, whatever God wants. And so that's why we can look at a passage like this and see that unregenerate people, those who are dead in the trespasses and sins, always do uh, what they want. They carry out their own desires and regenerate people increasingly more and more as we're sanctified, though we do the things that God, uh, though we learn to desire the things that God also desires, we ultimately desire them because God desires them. And so we can say that it's a mark of spiritual life to do what God desires, to carry out the desires of God instead of carrying out the desires of ourselves. Sanctification is learning to enjoy that learning to delight in that, learning to want to do what God desires. And so these are symptoms of spiritual life. These are symptoms of being made alive together with Christ. Do you see these things 
in yourself? Do you see in yourself that you walk in holiness? That you're no longer characterized by trespasses and sins. Outwardly and inwardly, as we talked about last week, God's law gets all the way to the heart. Do you see a change, even at the heart level, that your heart is no longer characterized by trespasses and sins, but is characterized by holiness and increasingly so? Do you see that in yourself? Do you see that you're no longer just going with the flow, following the course of this world, but that you make it your aim to please Him? That you're not just trying to fit in or just doing what everyone else does, but that there's a, an upward look, not just, not just floating, but there's an upward look. What does God want? How can I make it my aim to please Him? That you're no longer following Satan, but you recognize Jesus as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and you're oriented towards Him in subjection and in obedience? Is that a mark of your life? Is it a mark of your life that you're no longer living in the passions of your flesh? That you're no longer just carrying out the desires of the body and your mind, but that you now have new affections, passions for God, that you now are marked by carrying out God's desires instead of your own? These are marks of spiritual life. Do you see these things in yourself? Fifthly, those who have been united, pardon me, those who have been made alive are brought to life in union with Christ. We talked about last week when it says sons of disobedience at the end of verse 2 and when it says children of wrath at the end of verse 3. That's not referring to God. We're not sons of disobedience because we're God's children. Children of wrath because we're God's children. We're not sons of disobedience because we're Satan's children. Or children of wrath because we're Satan's children. We're children of wrath and sons of disobedience as Adam's children. Those who have inherited guilt and corruption from him. Because Adam was our representative in the garden. And when he acted, he acted for mankind and plunged mankind into sin. Those who have been made alive together with Christ are no longer represented by Adam and are therefore no longer a son of disobedience, no longer a child of wrath. They've been united to Christ. The theologians talk about legal and mystical union with Christ. Legal uh, would be like what we've been talking about, like Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15, being represented by Christ Jesus so that when Christ Jesus acted in His life and death and resurrection. He acted as your representative, as your surety, as your substitute legally for you. Mystical union would be like along the lines of what John 15 talks about, where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Where there's a union with Him that strengthens us, that vitalizes us, that nourishes us, that sustains us, that there's an experiential union with Christ. So again, even as I talked about aspects of the gospel, some are legal, like justification is a legal aspect of the gospel, but regeneration is a qualitative aspect of the gospel. So there is a legal aspect of union with Christ, and then there is a qualitative aspect of union with Christ. Legally, we become represented by Christ Jesus when we, are, when we become Christians but also we enter into mystical union with Christ or experiential 
union with Christ, whereby He nourishes us with His very self, with His very life by His Spirit. And that's what He's talking about in John 15. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in me. There's, I am the vine, you are the branches. That there's life that flows from Christ to His people. Union with Christ in its legal and mystical uh, aspects. Union with Christ is the basis of all of God's gracious actions to us. Union with Christ is the basis of all God's benevolence to His people. Union with Christ is the basis of God's gracious action toward us in regeneration, in making us alive together with Christ. Look at verse uh, 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. With Christ. When we were dead... We were with Christ Jesus in God's mind. And this goes back to what we saw at the beginning of chapter 1. That God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, we were in a sense in Christ. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we were in a sense in Christ. And so what you see in Ephesians chapter 2 is that those who were chosen before the foundation of the world in Christ are in due time called out of their spiritual death into spiritual life together with Christ Jesus. That is in union by virtue of the relationship in which they stand to Christ Jesus. And so the legal union with Christ is the basis of God's gracious action toward us in Christ Jesus. When we were dead, when we were not looking for God, God came looking for us. Why? Because there was a legal union between us and Christ Jesus from eternity past. And those whom He purposed to save in due time, He calls them out of their spiritual death and into spiritual life. And so, union with Christ is the basis of God's gracious action towards us in regeneration. And then union with Christ is the basis of everything good in our spiritual life subsequent to our regeneration. Everything that happens even after regeneration comes to us in and through Christ Jesus. Every spiritual blessing, again, back to chapter 1. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places comes to us in Christ Jesus. John Calvin said, No grace, no love must be expected by us from God except through Christ's mediation. Except through Christ's mediation. And that's not to say that the Father is reluctant to love us and Christ persuades Him. Rather, that's simply saying that all that our triune God in His love, in His mercy, in His benevolence toward us, the Father's benevolence, the Father's grace, the Father's mercy, the Son's grace, the Son's benevolence, the Son's mercy, the Spirit's grace, the Spirit's benevolence, the Spirit's mercy is all funneled toward us in Christ Jesus. That is our triune God's plan for blessing His people. Every spiritual blessing will be poured out upon those who our triune God designs to bless in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is therefore like the neck of an hourglass. Those old timekeeping pieces that you flip over and the sand runs through. Christ Jesus is like the neck, the narrow part of that hourglass 
and all of the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places that our triune God wants to give us pass through Christ Jesus, the neck of the hourglass, to us. Everything good that we receive comes to us through Christ Jesus. And you see that in the language of this passage five times. We're looking at three verses today. Four to seven. Ephesians chapter two, verses four to seven. Five times in these three verses alone, we read something like in Christ Jesus. Look at the passage. Chapter two and verse five. With Christ. Verse six. With Christ. Verse six again. With Christ. Verse six again. In Christ Jesus. Verse seven again. In Christ Jesus. When Paul comes to talk about salvation, he talks about Christ Jesus in unmistakable terms. With Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus. This is the language and the grammar of the gospel. With Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus. Union with Christ. Union with Christ is the means by which every spiritual blessing at the beginning, regeneration, And everything subsequent comes to us. It's by virtue of union with Christ Jesus. And so, it's God's plan. It comes to us in Christ Jesus, who is God Himself, but also God's appointed means of salvation. It's nothing that we did. We were just dead in our trespasses and sins, remember? And God made us alive. By grace you have been saved. And so... And so, it is all, as remember chapter 1 said three times, to the praise of His glory. To the praise of His glory. To the praise of His glorious grace. Why did God do it this way? All by Himself, in and through Christ Jesus, apart from our help, apart from our uh, uh, earning. Why did God do it this way? Verse 7, So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Again, we see what chapter 1 told us three times. All of this is to the praise of His glory. To show His glory. To show His grace. To show His mercy. God has done all of this to the praise of His glorious grace. And so, uh, salvation is of the Lord and He accomplishes it through union with Christ in the beginning and all the way through to the praise of His glorious grace. Now, we're going to go on uh, in future weeks and, and uh, talk further about this salvation. Uh, next week, we're looking at verses 8 to 10. Uh, grace, faith, works, how all of these things relate to one another, how uh, we understand uh, faith and works and grace and in respect to and in relationship to regeneration and conversion and so on and so forth. But I just want to, before we move on, I want to talk about the one, uh, or pardon me, the two aspects of blessings that come to us in and with Christ Jesus that are here in this passage today before we move on, verses 4 to 7. The first one is saved, right? By grace you have been saved. And this is all with Christ Jesus. Sometimes saved is referring to the penalty. Sometimes saved is referring to uh, the uh, power of sin. Sometimes saved is referring to the environment of sin. And so 
the Bible talks about you have been saved. That is, you've already been set free from its penalty. Justification is a past thing. Sometimes the Bible says you, you are being saved. It talks about it in the past, present tense, that we are being delivered from the power of sin. Uh, and sometimes it talks about you will be saved. And it's talking about when Christ returns and we're set free from this environment, this world where sin is corrupted things. When it says saved in this passage, what is in view is both the guilt of sin and the, the penalty for it, as well as the corruption of sin. Because it's talking about going from spiritual deadness to spiritual life. So we're set free from the power of sin, the, the deadness of sin that had encumbered us. We've been set free from that in Christ Jesus. And we're also no longer children of wrath, but now we are sons of God, adopted as His sons, as chapter 1 told us, and heirs of every spiritual blessing. And this is also in Christ Jesus. We've covered both of those things adequately, I think, so far. So I want to move on and look at verse 7, where it says that God has raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is talking about privilege and exaltation of believers to be positioned with Christ legally in heaven. Some think that raised us up with Him is referring to spiritual resurrection. And that is certainly in view, or it could certainly be read naturally that way. You've been brought from death to life, and so you've been raised up with Christ, and so in terms of spiritual resurrection. But I think, from my perspective, it's better to read it as being raised up, as being, being exalted. Because it says, raised us up and seated us with Him. Kind of in one breath. That we have been raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And so I think there's the language here, the the thought here in Paul's mind. He's already clearly dealt with that we have, have gone from death to life. So I think he's now talking about a further blessing, which is exaltation uh, together with Christ Jesus. He's raised us up and seated us with Christ Jesus in heavenly places. This is language of privilege and exaltation, uh, referring to our position with Christ legally in heaven. Now I want to address a, a couple of common misunderstandings of this passage before we move on. The first thing I want to say is being seated with Christ in heavenly places does not mean that we can go around bossing around demons. All right, this is, a, this is a common thing that is taught all over the place. But this is not the thrust of this passage. He's not, he's not um, this passage A is not actually teaching us anything about our um, relation to demons other than that we don't follow them anymore. Right? We don't follow the prince of the power of the air. But this is not a passage on spiritual warfare. So A, it's reading into the passage much more than is actually there in the passage. Um, but secondly, if we go look at Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is talking about spiritual warfare. He says in chapter 6, verse 10, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. 
etc., etc. And he goes on, um, talks about all of these ways that we need to prepare ourselves for battle with our enemy. And he talks about, in verse 18, perseverance. Uh, earlier in the part that I just read, he talks about, in verse 13, um, after having done all to stand firm. Paul's idea of spiritual warfare isn't just a one and done binding a demon or bossing around a demon or casting a demon into the abyss or bringing a demon before Jesus' feet by our words. Or Paul's idea of spiritual warfare isn't that. When Paul comes to explicitly teach on spiritual warfare, that's not what he's teaching. And so those who are teaching based on Ephesians chapter 2, uh, that because we have been raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that we can just go around bossing demons around, that's a, that's a misunderstanding. That's incorrect. That is an error. That is not what this, this passage is teaching. I, I hope I've demonstrated that exegetically, but I just want to hit this point a little harder again. Um, just in terms of just thinking through our experience of it. When, when people go around binding demons, all right, then, then what happens? Are those people forever set free? When people go and bind a demon in Jesus' name, does that person never sin that way again? When the, when the demon of pride is bound in a person or, or you know, the demon of this or that or whatever sin is causing or somebody's going through a hard time or has a sickness and people begin trying to decree and declare and take authority over demons because they think that it's a natural consequence of being raised up with Christ and seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When people bind demons like this and boss demons around like this, does it actually affect lasting change? Do those demons never come back? Leave and never return. I bind you into the abyss never to return. I bring you to Jesus' feet. I declare that you have no power here. All of these things, right? And I used to be there, so I'm not trying to be haughty about this, but I'm just trying to correct this misunderstanding. Do those demons leave and never come back? Or do people continue to struggle on with the very same things that they were struggling with? Think about this. How many times has Satan been bound in churches? How many times have people said, Satan, I decree, I declare, I bind you in Jesus' name, so on and so forth. If Satan is bound, what happened? Did he break the chains? What happened? Satan has been bound thousands and thousands of times, hundreds of thousands of times. I'm going to go out on a limb and say millions of times, perhaps and probably even billions of times. In fact, probably right now at this very moment, there are people trying to bind Satan because of what Ephesians 2 says, that we are raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So what is happening? Is Satan getting bound like Samson with thin little ropes and as soon as they bind him, he bursts them and he's back? Or what's happening? What is going on here? If we have the same authority as Jesus over demons, that we can just go and boss them around and tell them to do whatever we want and they are, have to obey because we're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, then what, what is going to happen when Christ Jesus returns? Is He going to swiftly and firmly and decisively put all of these demons under His feet? I hope, I hope that Jesus has more power in His words than we do over demons. I hope that Jesus, at the end of all things, I quoted earlier, He's the King of kings, 
from Revelation 19, and it says that he's returning with a sharp sword in his mouth to slay the wicked with the breath of his mouth. I hope that that sword will do more than our words have done in the last hundred years since the Azusa Street Revival. I hope. Because uh, this is not the nature of spiritual warfare that Paul envisions. We are raised up and seated with Christ Jesus in the heavenly realms, but as I've demonstrated from the text here in Ephesians, it doesn't mean going around bossing around demons. And it doesn't mean, secondly, claiming health, wealth, and prosperity. We're seated with Christ Jesus in the heavenly realms, and so <clears throat> you've heard, therefore we're, we're uh, not to live like paupers because we're, we're in the throne room. We're not to live uh, like peasants because we're children of the king. And more than that, when, when, the, king, uh, when the king wants to give something to his uh, uh, children, or the king does want to give something to his children, and so therefore we shouldn't be living in poverty and so on and so forth. But more than that, we have the keys to the storeroom. We have the keys to the treasury. We can unlock these things. Right? Again, this, this is taught from Ephesians chapter 2. This is, a, this is a text that we hear. Because we have been raised up with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, we shouldn't be sick. We need to speak a word of authority over our illness. We shouldn't be poor. We need to speak a word of authority over our finances. Uh, all of these kinds of things. Now, Paul did not see that as a natural consequence of his theology. And I just want to give you one example from Ephesians chapter 1. Or pardon me, from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. When we look at the scriptures, we see Jesus and the apostles all suffering. All of them. Sickness, financial difficulty, martyrdom. Evidently, it's not a good and necessary consequence to deduce from the fact that we've been raised up with Christ and seated with Him in the heavenly realms that therefore our lives should be free from illness and, and so on and so forth and, and poverty. Uh, this is not a natural consequence. It reads contrary to the whole New Testament. This is not a natural consequence of this verse. So, after having tried to explain a couple things it doesn't mean, what does it mean? Because I started by saying, this is the language of privilege and exaltation. This is the language of the exalted state of God's people in Christ Jesus. Our privilege that we have in Christ Jesus. And I think it is language of authority. And so, what does it mean? It means that we share in Christ's subjugation of the world. Christ does have real authority. In Matthew chapter 28, he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. In Philippians chapter 2, we read that God has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And as I have quoted a couple times from Revelation chapter 19, he is the king of kings. And by virtue of our union with him, we we do share in the exercise of that authority. 
And so what we need to understand, though, is how Christ is exercising that authority. And we follow in His lead, and we, our authority doesn't run beyond what Christ's authority is doing. In other words, <clears throat> if my son helps me with something, as it were, um, he doesn't have authority to go and do beyond what I have told him to do, even if he's participating in it with me. That's just an analogy, but trying to help us understand here. Christ does have a real authority, and we do have a real share in his authority, but we have to look at how he's exercising his authority, and we need to understand, A, that we can't, and B, neither, that we, neither should we run beyond what Christ is doing with his authority. And so, when we look at what, what Christ is doing now, we see that as 1 Corinthians 15 says, that He is putting all of His enemies under His feet. He must reign, 1 Corinthians 15.25 says, until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. God is presently putting all things under Jesus' feet. The way that he's doing that is through the preaching of the gospel. He's making enemies into friends. He's making enemies into servants. This is, there, we have a proclamation of a king who is coming to inherit a kingdom. And he offers terms of peace to all who will accept it. And uh, as we go out and we proclaim that, the enemy is bowing before uh, Christ Jesus, namely us. We look and we see that, that why, Second uh, Peter chapter 3, why has God tarried so long? Why hasn't He come back? Because He's patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why has He not just immediately put down all the demonic forces in the world? Why has He not just immediately spoken the word and, and ridded this world of sin and everything that it causes, illness and poverty and everything? Why hasn't He done that? Because He has a redemptive purpose right now, for the here and now. And so, that is what Christ is doing, and we share in that. We share, we have an authoritative message to speak to the world, and we call people to bow before Christ Jesus. And then we warn, and this is the second aspect of how Christ is using His authority, we warn that when Christ comes back, He's not coming back with redemptive purposes, but He's coming back to bring judgment. He's coming back with a sword in His mouth with which to slay the wicked. And we participate in that also. Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 and 27, teaches us that um, we participate in that. It says, The one who conquers and the one who keeps my work and works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces even as I myself have received authority from the Father. And 1 Corinthians 6, verses 2 and 3 say, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? The Scriptures teach us, and I don't know exactly what this means, but the Scriptures teach us that we will share in Christ's authority in terms of judging men and angels that are in open rebellion towards Him at the time that He returns. And so we are raised up to a state of privileged exaltation together with Christ Jesus. We are seated with Him, and we do have a share in the exercise of His authority 
but we exercise it according to his prescription, the way he's told us to do. We exercise it according to his paradigm, the way that he's doing it. And we exercise it according to his timing and all things in their due time. We don't have authority to run beyond what scripture instructs us to do. And we don't have authority to do more in the subjugation of Christ's enemies than he himself is doing at this stage of redemptive history. And so at every stage, we take our cues from Christ Jesus and we share in the exercise of his authority according to his instruction. And so uh, that is one of the blessings that is mentioned here in Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, um, I think it's important to see that uh, what it is, what it means, what it doesn't mean, and understand uh, something of that before we move on to verses 8 to 10. But let's bring this back around. That was a little bit, well, it was a long digression, but it was a digression from what we're particularly looking at uh, today, the, the big idea here today, which is that God made us alive. What are some practical applications of this? Let's go back and look at this as we bring things in for the landing. What are some practical applications of this? One is, uh, are you alive? Do you see symptoms of life in yourself? If you don't, then don't deceive yourself. Don't deceive yourself. If you don't see symptoms of life in yourself, then you're not a Christian. Or you need to look closer, and someone may be able to help you with that. But if, let me put it this way, if there actually are no symptoms of life, then you are not a Christian. You may not see it, but if there are no symptoms, even upon a close and careful examination with the help of wise friends and biblical counsel, you're not a Christian. It's not about going to church. It's not about going through certain religious motions. It's not about praying a prayer one time or a one-time decision. Christianity involves being made alive, a constitutional change, a qualitative change in who we actually are. And if that qualitative change has never happened, then the faith that you exercise is not true saving faith as it doesn't stem from a heart that has actually been changed by the grace of God. And uh, if you do see the signs of life in yourself, um, conceive of the Christian life correctly. I was dead and God made me alive. I was dead and God made me alive. That should be a great comfort to us. And that should also lead us to doxology. It should be a great comfort to us to, to know that um, God has undertaken uh, our salvation for our good, for His glory. Though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God's mercy and God's love towards us is so rich that He would make us alive together with Christ Jesus. Uh, that should be a great comfort to us and it should lead us to doxology. It should lead us personally to have loving thoughts toward God. As the Apostle says, we love because He first loved us. Uh, it should lead us to Godward love, to see the love that He had for us in making us alive when we were dead. It should also lead us in, to talk about our testimony in the right way. All of us who are Christians did make a decision. And we did put our faith in Christ Jesus. But, it, but thinking um, correctly about the gospel, the way that the scripture talks about the gospel, uh, the way that, that Paul talks about it here is God made us alive. Maybe we ought to emphasize as we share our testimonies with others, not so much what we did, but what God did. Now, 
I'll be the first to say it. Next week, I'm going to touch it again. You must exercise faith. Everybody has to exercise faith toward Christ Jesus. Everybody has to respond to God in faith and repentance. Everybody has to. But God, uh, even as we'll see next week, uh, by grace you have been saved through faith. And yet he goes on to say, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So as we talk about even our testimony, it's for salvation is for the glory of God, to the praise of His glorious grace, to the praise of His glorious grace, to the praise of His glorious grace, so that in the coming ages, chapter 2, verse 7, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. If God has worked salvation in us to the praise of His own glory, then let's tell our testimonies in a way that is most likely to further the praise of God's glorious grace. Man, I was dead in my trespasses and sins. But in September 2006, God made me alive together with Christ. God opened my eyes to see the glory of Christ Jesus. He, he brought me to a realization of my sin. He showed me Jesus, the perfect and spotless Lamb of God, who is sufficient for all who call upon Him. That whoever looks to Jesus Christ in repentance of faith will not be put to shame, but will live forevermore. God, help me to see this. I had no taste for the things of God. Man, I was following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. I was living in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. But God made me alive. God gave me a taste for spiritual things. His Spirit helped me to find sweetness in Christ where before there was no sweetness at all. Maybe we ought to tell our testimony in more of these terms to put the spotlight on God and His gracious work since it's all to the praise of His glorious grace. And then, I want to bring out another application, uh, well, a couple of other applications uh, with respect to this point. The second one is evangelism. I touched on it last week, but if people are as dead as this passage says, right, then, then as we go out and evangelize, we need to understand that what, what needs to happen between a person being outside of Christ and between a person being inside of Christ, between a person being in Adam and in Christ, between a person uh, walking in trespasses and sins and walking in holiness, following the course of this world, making it their aim to please Him, following the prince of the power of the air, following the King of kings and the Lord of lords, living in the passions of flesh, living with passions for God, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, carrying out the desires of God. What needs to happen in between is not just a minor adjustment. It's not just you need to just start trying to make some better choices in your life. What needs to happen is resurrection. What needs to happen is spiritual power at work in this person's heart and in this person's mind. What needs to happen is a work of God. It didn't say, but Paul made you alive together with Christ. Or Epaphras made you alive together with Christ. Or Apollo. Or Peter. Or it didn't say you helped make yourself alive. Or you made better choices. It says God made you alive. What has to happen is a change of the heart that only God can do. And so what we've got to do as we go out and urge people to put repentance or to put faith in Christ Jesus and turn to Him in repentance, what we also have to do is get on our knees and pray for God to work. We need God to do something. I talked about Ezekiel 37 last week. Evangelism is preaching to dead bones. Preaching to skeletons. 
We've got to pray that God will put flesh on those bones, that God will put tendons and muscles on those bones, and that He will put breath in them. We've got to pray. And as we go out, we've got to present the gospel in such a way that people understand a radical reorientation of their lives is needed. Again, not just a little adjustment here and there, like your life's going pretty good, but it would be a lot better if you had Jesus in it. No, we need to be clear. Listen, if you're outside of Jesus, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Be winsome about it, right? I'm not, I'm not telling you this because I don't like you. I'm telling you this because I love you, right? I talked about last week, just as a good doctor is not going to hide the fact that you have cancer from you. He's not going to get your test results back. You're like, well, it looks okay to me. Right? So if we love one another, we've got to tell the truth to one another. And so we go out winsomely with love in our hearts, with grace and with compassion, but, but presenting Christianity clearly that much more than a minor adjustment is required, much more than just a little icing on the cake is required, but you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You have no hope in yourself. You've got to look to Jesus and Him crucified for salvation from your sins. You've got to repent not only of the obvious outward things you do, but you've got to recognize that in God's sight, all of your righteousness is as filthy rags as the prophet tells us. You have no hope apart from Christ Jesus, but Christ Jesus is offered to you here and now as I share the gospel with you. But what He requires of you is a radical reorientation of your life. True biblical Christianity is not just praying a sinner's prayer or filling out a visitor card or even making a commitment to come to church week by week. Spiritual life is a radical reorientation of the affections of the heart, of the priority, of the mind, of the will. That and nothing less is true biblical conversion. And that's what I'm calling you to. You need to come all the way around. This should inform our evangelism as we think about what Christianity is what a Christian is, what has to happen in a person's heart in order for them to become a Christian. And then we've got to pray for God to work in them and bring them from death to life. I think it was uh, John Owen. I can't quite remember who it was that said, but somebody said we should spend twice the time talking to uh, God about men than we do talking to men about God. And if we did that, maybe our evangelism would be more effective. I'm paraphrasing, but you can, you can understand the point. If we, if we uh, sh- share the gospel, uh, uh, let's say for an hour in a week, you know, what, how many hours are we praying for the fruit of that evangelism? One, two, five, or zero? Are we just going out acting like people just need to smarten up a little bit? Give them the message and then, well, hopefully they'll just think about it and do it. We've got to pray to God who raises the dead, even as we preach to the dry bones. And then thirdly, and this is the last application that I want to make, there's an application for church life here. Um, As Baptists, we believe in a regenerate church membership. That means that people who are born again, people who have been made alive together with Christ are eligible for church membership. And those who are not regenerate are not eligible for church membership. Uh, We also believe in congregationally evaluated, uh, uh, a a congregationally evaluated process for church membership. So the pastors will make recommendations after interviewing somebody, um, but we're going to bring it to the congregation to bring people into membership. And uh, 
thirdly, we believe in congregational decision-making on a number of key issues, that the church, the congregation bears ultimate responsibility for the direction of the church. And so, um, I just want to highlight this point. This not, I'm not going to go into a little sermonette on Baptist ecclesiology, but I just want to bring out this one point. We need to be careful to guard the front door of church membership and look for signs of life in people that we're bringing into membership. And we also need to notice uh, in the lives of church members around us where spiritual life is flagging or waning. And if, if spiritual life appears to have been extinguished, we've got to do something about that. And sometimes that means church discipline and putting someone out of the church. The reasons are twofold. We're not trying to be um, uh, a church that has an air of suspicion is not a very healthy church, but a church that should have but a church should have an air of discernment that we should be able to think clearly and biblically about important issues. Uh, it's not that we don't love people; it's that we do love people, and we don't want people to think that they're Christians when they're not Christians. We don't want people. As a, the example I gave last week, to show up at the sports stadium thinking they have a good ticket and find out that they bought it from a scalper who photocopied it from a good ticket that's already been used. Right? We don't want people showing up to the celestial city as Christian's friend did in Pilgrim's Progress without having entered at the wicket gate and received, receiving the ticket that was given to him there. We don't want people deceived. Right? And so if there are not signs of spiritual life, we want to be clear with them that there are not signs of spiritual life. But secondly, unregenerate church membership will shipwreck the church in time. Because, especially as Baptists who believe in congregational church government, if you have 100 members and 60 of them are unregenerate, they haven't been made alive together with Christ. The decisions that will be made in that church, the directions that will be taken in that church will be unhealthy and detrimental and destructive to the well-being of that church until finally there's either a revival or an implosion. And so I just want to draw out that last application as we are trying to launch a new church. Uh, we want to think clearly and carefully about uh, the issue of regeneration. We want to think biblically about conversion, um, that not everybody who prays a sinner's prayer, not everybody who even comes to church regularly or consistently is a Christian. We want to be uh, gracious and accepting of all. We don't want to show a cold shoulder in our church to those who are not yet Christians, but we just want to try to have enough discernment and enough clarity to minister effectively to those who come through the door. And if people think that they're Christians and they're not, the most loving thing that we can do and the best thing that we can do as a church is make that clear, uh, both in personal conversations with them and in the way that we conduct uh, uh, church affairs. So that's just a very practical application to bring out in closing. So Christianity is not neutral people trying to make the right choices and stay on the right path. Christianity is not uh, people showing up at church week after week. Christianity is not about signing a, a, a card or a declaration. Christianity is not about uh, just a sense of respect or um, a sense of admiration for this person we call Jesus. Christianity is not about a reformation of morals. Christianity is not fundamentally these things. Christianity is spiritually dead people being made alive by God in union with Christ Jesus and respond, who then respond to Him with repentance and faith all their lives long until God 
finally brings them all the way home to live with Him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. This is the gospel. Nothing less. Uh, we need to think clearly and biblically about this. So next week we're going to look at uh, faith, grace, works, the relationship of all of these things uh, in view of what we've already studied about spiritual deadness and God's work of regeneration and the giving of the new birth. <laughs>